0: Just a a touch of moisture this morning, Um, as as desperate as as things have felt um, with wind and with with the temperature and um, all the elevated fire conditions and the fires that we've seen. Um, I think it's it's a really good reminder is like that that moment of relief when you see, oh, it's not even pouring, but there's moisture and like there's this, man, we needed that. That it's a really good probably um, analogy for us as well. As where our souls can get parched, um, and that we need the gospel, right? Like, that, that what our hearts are longing for and what we can get dry and weary and susceptible to danger um, is when we see religion, when we see church, when we see works, when we see things like that being most—that what we need, and it's not. What we need is the, that over, just that refreshing presence of the Lord. Um, and, and it's really, it's one of the reasons why Redeemer exists. Um, the, almost seven years ago, we planted wanting to be a place where it's not just saturated with churches, but we would be in an area that's saturated with the gospel, like the hope that there really is. Um, that being said, um, uh, we have a couple with us this morning sitting over there on the back road, Justin and Chelsea Smith. Um, they have some prayer cards back on the offering table, but they're looking to plant uh, a church this year in San Angelo. Um, and so... They were actually with us a little over, it was really right at two years ago, um, as they were beginning this kind of process of what it might look like to plant a church, and have spent some time with us, and, and now they're back two years later, um, and the church is, is underway. Um, not, not services yet, but gathering folks, and a core team is developing, and a gospel community um, is, is meeting. And so if you have folks, contacts in San Angelo, um, man, grab Justin and Chelsea back there. Um, he's... He's waving, giving a thumbs up back there. Um, if you want to grab a card and be praying for him, we just, we're excited to play any role we can um, in seeing the gospel saturate areas that are really dry and parched. Um, all right, so that's, that's actually not the sermon this morning. Um, if you have a Bible or your, your phone or tablet or something, you'll be looking at the text. We'll be in Exodus 25. So we've been in Exodus now... For several months, we're actually—we only have a few weeks left in Exodus. We will be done um, either the last week of April or the first week of May. So, not just a whole lot of time left. Um, As we've been in Exodus, we have seen just this—this kind of beautiful march of of the birth of a nation. As we've seen a people rescued by God um, out of the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt, that He has rescued them by His strong and mighty hands. He has now led them through the wilderness where he has shown that he will be daily their sustainer and their provider, that they don't get to store up grace and food and and water for the future. They get what they need today because they're learning to trust him. And so his character is being revealed to the people throughout the book of Exodus. Um, And now we've landed at Mount Sinai where the law has been given, right, kind of their constitution where they've received the civil law, the moral law, and the ceremonial law um, and now we're beginning to, to move into the final section of Exodus. And in this section, they're going to receive a, a place of worship. And, and so Exodus is a theological history, right? It is telling the history of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, as their, their nation is set up. But it's a theological history because it's revealing the characteristics of God himself, right? Teaching them who he is and how they should respond to him. And so as we go in, we're seeing the character of God revealed, and it's, it's pressing on us on how do we respond, and how do we worship this same God, because this is a part of our story. And so last week, um, we, we came out of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then we saw case law, where they're kind of showing how the Ten Commandments work themselves out in life, and the covenant was ratified, where, where Moses reads it before the people in this ceremony, and they say, we'll gladly obey it. Um, probably a little too enthusiastic in that, um, based on what their obedience is going to look like, um, and the covenant is ratified. It's, it's confirmed between God and his people, um, and so it ended in, in chapter 24 with Moses going back up for the fifth time up on Mount Sinai um, to interact with God, again, as mediator for the people, and so this morning, we're going to begin to see the tabernacle develop, the, their place of worship. And so the tabernacle, um, it's one of those words, you're like, man, I hear that all the time um, when you read scripture. The tabernacle, quite literally, is going to, it's a tent. It's, a, it's going to be a movable building that will, will move with the people as they are nomadic, as they move into the promised land, and it's going to take generations before the temple is built. right? The temple, a permanent place, is going to be built when all the enemies have been removed from the promised land. Up Until then, their place of worship is the tabernacle, this tent that can move and go with them. Um, It's going to be like a tangible, visual reminder of what God has done and who He is. Because right, right, right now, they are camped out around the base of Mount Sinai, a place where the entire people have heard God Himself give the law. They've heard Him speak, they've seen Him descend in glory. And so there was smoke and fire and terror as His holiness descended. Right, So you can imagine, as long as they're camped out um, for the next year around the base of Mount Sinai, they're like, yeah, we remember that day. <laughs> right? We were terrified that day. We trembled that day. But as they leave Sinai, right, we, we, we're prone to forget. We're, we're quick to forget what the Lord has done. And so the tabernacle is something that will move with them. And so if you're a visual learner, right, the tabernacle becomes a really good picture for you, a really good thing, because it's this constant thing wherever you're camped that God has met with us, that he is still with us. And so we've seen God reveal himself through miracles. We've seen him um, through historical accounts, through the law, right? And for some, maybe you're not an oral learner, right? You're a visual learner. And and so the tabernacle may be helpful to to pull together some of the things that God is revealing about himself. I think there's probably two main um, issues with us this morning as we look at the tabernacle. One is this, and I think this is probably more prevalent. You don't care, Right, you're thinking the tabernacle is not something we deal with anymore. It's Old Testament law. It's removed. It's not. It's not for us. And so you're just a little bit indifferent to it. Um, the other potential struggle, and, and this we don't see it as often, but it, this is the case, is that some people are so entranced by the law and by the tabernacle and the temple and these type things because it, it feels tangible. It feels like it's something you can grab onto that you can control a little bit, that they want to put this almost back on themselves and say, I wish we could go back and do these things because the Holy Spirit can almost feel like too free, right? Like I want something I can hold on to and that I can control. And so this morning, we're gonna look at chapters 25, 26, and 27. We typically um, do not look at this much text. We're usually looking at smaller amounts. But if we're not careful, when we're looking at the law and when we're looking at the tabernacle, we can miss the forest for the trees, right? You can get so bogged down on there's 50 clasps, but on these 50 clasps hung, right? Like, it's, it's 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 as it's laying out like an architectural plan that you're just like, yeah, I don't, I'm not enjoying reading this, and so you miss what's really going on due to all the details. And so we're going to try to look at it um, as a whole. Ultimately, where we want to start with this is this that the tabernacle was this visual, physical reminder that God was with them. It would be placed at the center of their camp, that he has come alongside, and as they are living a nomadic lifestyle intense, that God is residing in their camp, in their midst as well, with them. Um, Exodus 25, 8 says this. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Like this is the, the key to this whole section. Is that God is going to like live right in the midst of his people. And they're going to have this reminder of it as the tabernacle is built. Alright, so first and foremost, if, if you look at um, Exodus 25, 1 through 9, where this starts is Moses comes, he's talking with God, and the Lord said to Moses in verse 1, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices, right? He just starts going through this like, almost like a grocery list, right, of things. And this is where it starts as he says, look, what I want is I want the people to contribute. I want them to give, and from these things, this specific list, we're going to build a sanctuary, a tabernacle for me to dwell in your midst. And and the the first thing I want you to note about it was that it was a free will offering, right? It was not out of compulsion. He's not saying everyone must give X amount. He's saying, I want them to give as their heart is led, as they desire to give. Um it's, it's what Paul tells us in Corinthians, right? That each needs to decide, right? It's not out of compulsion. And, and you think, right, if, if your thoughts immediately go to, whew, I don't have to give, right, then, then you're missing the point of what has God given? What has he done, right? That he, as they've been rescued literally out of slavery, like they're, they're months removed from slavery, right, of no hope, and they're now not only Are they in a free place, but they have a God who's leading them. He's given them a constitution. He's given them a place to worship. He is staying with them. And he's saying, so now, would you give freely back? We also need to note that we don't give anything that was ultimately ours to begin with, right? That everything that we have is is because God has given it to us. So even the wood that they're giving is because he's the one who created trees, right? For them to have wood to give back. The, the, where they have the gold, the silver, these things, if you remember when they left Egypt, um, they were supposed to ask their neighbors for, for wealth and for riches. And they basically like plundered the Egyptians as they were leaving town. And so now they have this wealth to give back as they're gonna create a tabernacle. Um, if you look down in verse nine, um, he says, that, look, we're gonna, we're gonna make a sanctuary, verse nine, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so in Exodus 25, 9, and in verse 40 of chapter 25, in verse 30 of chapter 26, and in verse 8 of chapter 27, so four times through these three chapters, God basically says, do it as I've shown you, as I've given you the pattern, as I've given you the plan, that God is revealing to Moses the specific look of the tabernacle. Because if you go through and try to recreate the tabernacle based on what we have here, you can get close, but we don't have all the detail. And so he was basically shown like a a pattern, a plan, that God is initiating this. He is saying, look, I'm telling you what I want you to do, what my house of worship is going to look like. He's the one who initiated the rescue. He's the one that's initiated salvation, law, grace. He's initiating the tabernacle He's given them the plans for it. Um, in chapter 28, verse 3, he says, I've given the skills to the craftsmen so that they can do the work that I'm going to need. Right? Like he says, I've given them that. Um, he's given the materials, and now they're having an opportunity to honor and to worship him by giving back um, out of their own um, desire as the tabernacle is going to be built. So we begin to see then um, what, what this is going to look like. And so if we turn over to Exodus 27, and we're going to be bouncing in these three chapters a little bit, um, beginning in verse 9 um, through 19, we begin to see there's a court. Um, and so I'm going to show you a picture here in a second, all right? Um, so it, for if you're visual, you're thinking, man, the tabernacle is visual. You've got to show me something here. But basically what happens is the tabernacle is going to be a tent, and around this tent there's going to be a courtyard that is fenced in, Okay. And so the courtyard is going to run like 75 by 150 foot, okay? And so that's roughly 10,000 square feet, all right? Um, This building, if you took it from here to the alley, is less than that, right? But it's not, it's like four tennis courts, right? It's not a massive place. The actual tabernacle, the actual tent is only about 1,000 square feet. And so there's 9,000 square feet that's just open. Um, It's just a courtyard that is fenced in. And so... Um, verses 9 through 19 describe basically the fence made out of animal hides and, and, and what it's going to look like. They're going to be eight foot tall, right? That people aren't like peering over, right? That it's, they're going to see the smoke, they're going to smell the smells, they're going to hear the activity, but unless you're on the inside, you're not seeing what's going on all the time. This would have been in the dead center of their camp. Um, as you read through 25, 26, and 27, they're going to measure everything in cubits. Uh, we've, translated that for you, but if you want to know what a cubit is it's it's this it's from an elbow to the top of your fingers right so it, it's it's not exact it's somewhere between like fourteen and twenty inches right depending on how long your elbow to your fingers are right so um, the, the estimates are a little bit a little bit rough um, and there's only going to be one way in there is one gate on the east side that would allow folks in um, let's go ahead and show the first picture all right so basically you see like these curtains right so it's, it's 150 foot um on the north and south sides on the east and west because it faces east is 75 feet and the tabernacle is that the the tent that's back there on the back end um, and so you see there's one way in and so that, that's the, the size of a little larger than our building here. Um, so as the courtyard is there, within the courtyard, you'll see um, the, the first object you see is, is actually the altar, okay? Um, as you go in through the kind of the purple gates there, that first item is the altar. We see the altar discussed in chapter 27, um, verses 1 through 8. That is roughly... Seven foot by seven foot by four foot high. It's a little bigger than that. Um, It's hollow. Um, Verse eight, chapter 27 tells us, you shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so you shall make it. All right, so remember, as they have come out of confirming the covenant, God has told them like, hey, here's what I expect of you. And they've said, we'll gladly obey it. We'll do it all. The fact is, is they're not gonna be able to. And the tabernacle, the altar, is honestly is a place of grace and mercy because it's saying, look, when you don't keep the law, there's this opportunity for you to make things right. There's this place of sacrifice where you can right, regain being on the right side of, of, of the Lord here. It's a place of mercy and of grace. Um, it's also, though, going to be a reminder of holiness because there's going to be constant sacrifice and death and this putrid smell of blood going on there, of that, that we don't just willy-nilly walk into God's presence. They saw that on the mountain, right? Like they trembled in fear. They weren't allowed to go on it because he says, I'm holy, you touch the mountain, you're going to die. The altar was a reminder of that, that death and blood is required, right, to, to approach a holy God because we're sinners. And the altar would, it, there would have been constant sacrifices. It was a constant reminder of, right, when we break the law, when we don't obey God, there's a cost. And it's, it's constantly going. The priest, you'll notice there's not like um, a lounge area up there, right, for the priest to hang out in, right? Because there was always sacrifices to be made. Chapter 26 um, of this section, the entire chapter is the tabernacle um, itself. Um, and so ultimately, there's going to be three parts to this. There's You have the courtyard, um, which is one, and then the tabernacle tent is going to be divided into two parts. Um, One, it's going to have, it's going to be called the holy place, and it's the the bulk of the tent. It's roughly 30 foot by 15 foot, um, and then the back half, or not the back half, but the back portion is the holy of holies, or the most holy place, and it's a cube. It's 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot high, right? And so it's the back portion of the tent is the holy of holies. Um, in the holy place, you have a couple items that are going to be built. The lampstand and the table. If you want to go on to the next picture, it's okay. Um, so you'll, you'll see there's a, a, a curtain to get in and that the first two thirds is the holy place and then we have... Another curtain, which we'll talk about in a second, and we go into the Holy of Holies, the back third. Um, in the holy place, um, the lampstand, you, you know this better as the menorah, right, is built. You'll see this in verse 31 of, at the end of chapter 25. So you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups. Its flower shall be of one piece with it, and there will be six branches going out of its side. Three branches of the lamp stand out one side and three out the other, right? And and so, it's, this is the menorah being developed here. Um, It was to look like a tree, right? It was to be this reminder of life and of light, right? It was what, it, it had a functional purpose that it, with all the curtains that would have been on there, all the thickness, there wouldn't have been a lot of light, so it would have, lit the place, but it would have looked like a tree reminded them of the garden, right, where, where God first interacts with humanity. Um, and one of the, the stipulations was that it was always to be lit, always. And so there was a priest or multiple priests who their job throughout the day and throughout the night was to tend to the fire, um, a reminder of a constant need to worship God, right, like that God is worthy of worship always, And so this work is always being done. That there was always someone serving God. And then in verse, sorry, in chapter twenty-five, beginning in verse twenty-three, we see the table for bread. And it was a small table, not a huge table, but it was. You see it, um, sorry, Megan. I keep flipping around on you between verses and and the picture. You see that the on the that would be like the north wall there, a table. And they would stack 12 loaves of bread in two piles, right? One loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was not to feed God. It wasn't like they were saying, hey, God, here, you eat, be satisfied. They would have bread on it constantly. They would replace it once a week. The priest would eat the old bread and then um, lay out new bread. And it was a reminder of God's daily provision, that he was present and that he was the one that was sustaining them. The bread that was always there was because he was taking care of them. He was making sure that they were sustained necessarily. And then we enter the place that maybe you've heard of the most, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And in this, we have the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so if you've watched Indiana Jones, right, you have some, you have some thoughts on this, this box that um, wasn't very large. It's, it's like 45 inches, right? So that's less than four feet um by 27 inches by 27 inches. It wasn't a large, large thing. Um, and within it was the Ten Commandments. They placed the testimony within it. Um, and that was the only piece of furniture, the only thing that would be in the Holy of Holies. The other primary object would have been the veil. Um, and the veil was massive. Um, the Talmud which was one of the, the Jewish religious books, says it took a hundred priests to carry it based on its, its, its thickness and its being foot, 15 foot tall um, and how thick that they developed it, um, that it was, it was this massive, heavy object. Um, you see this talked about um, at the end of chapter 26. Um, Verse 31, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, right, sewn into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate you the holy place from the most holy place." And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set out the table outside the veil in the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. And you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen and embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen, right? You begin to see how like you start to get all the details and you're like, where are we going? Where? like some visual representation begins to help you see what's going on, that it's really just laying out what this should look like. So here's here's what's going on, right? We're we're not just going to talk about architecture this morning. The tabernacle was meant to be this, like, visual reminder of God's presence, right? And as it's being laid out, it is showing, like, the heavenly realities. It is attempting to say this isn't just God's place. This is, a, this is heaven on earth in this place. Right? And, and so here's some of the ways it does it does it. That there's an increasing value of metals that are used. So if you look at the fence, bronze is used. As you begin to work towards the holy place, it's silver. As you get into the holy place, it's gold. And as you move into the most holy place, the holy of holies, it's pure gold. Right? Like there's this idea of like this increasing value as you head towards the presence of God. There's also an increasingly restricted access to it. That The courtyard, you could be in the courtyard. You could step in and watch the proceedings. You could have your sacrifices done there. You could be there. But then to go into the holy place was only for the priest. And to go into the most holy place at this day, at this time, where we're at in Exodus, would have been Moses' job, right? And then Aaron's job as the high priest. And it would begin to be one person once a year would go into that room, right? That it was being restricted. And so you have this sense of, man, God is so close. He's so near. His presence is here with us. And yet he's still somewhat far away because I don't have access. I, I can't even go in and see. Like, I'm only dependent upon people telling me what's going on in there. And if you, were, if you weren't a part of the, the family of Israel, if you weren't um, a Jew... Is a Gentile, as a non-Jew, you lived outside the camp, right? You were even one step further removed, that you didn't even live around the tabernacle. That the sacrifices, that the veil reminded them we don't go easily before God, right? And that the veil covered his presence. It's like he's there, but I don't, I don't have immediate access to him, right? And so there was this, both, this excitement because he's with us and yet, I wish I knew him. I wish I could get closer to him. Um, the, the other that made this like the idea of heaven on earth was they would sew the cherubims, right, angels, onto the veil, right? The, the first time we see cherubims in Scripture is Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin and they're removed from the garden, a cherubim is set up to guard the garden to say, you don't let them in, right? It's not a fat little Cupid angel, Right? Um, Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 6, like they were terrifying beings that are meant to guard, right, God's presence. And so as the veil is covered in them, it's this reminder of you are entering a heavenly, holy place. The ark is actually described as as it's built, the lid of it, it has two cherubims that are looking down because God's above, and they're looking down protecting his place. Right, that is saying like, you are not walking on an earthly place, you are in a holy place heavenly place the blue was intended as a reminder of, of right of, of sky and heaven and then the ark the only piece of furniture that would have been in there this box covered with this lid with the cherubims on it was the footstool like that god is it, it says he would meet them right above the ark of the covenant right above the cherubims which are guarding it right it's the footstool of his throne it's like heaven is descending into the tabernacle, and he's saying, this is where I will meet you, right? This is not the earthly realm. This is the heavenly realm. Exodus 25 ended as Moses is going up, that he waited six days, and on the seventh day, God calls him back to the mountain, up to the top, to begin to receive the plans for the tabernacle, right? That language of six days, and then on the seventh was intentional, it's, it's the idea of creation, right? That God is recreating something. It's why God has given specific plans. He doesn't just tell the Hebrews, hey, you build the best thing you can build, and I'll come hang out. He's saying, it is my plan, my organization, my intent is to be with you. And so here's the way we're going to do this. It's what creation is, right? That God created the earth, set it in perfect harmony And then as Adam and Eve are in the garden, he walks in their midst. It's God with man in perfect harmony, right? Just the way it's meant to be forever. And then sin breaks it and corrupts it, right? And so we begin to see God is saying, no, no, my place is with you. And so I'm giving you a place where I'm going to be. But because of sin, there's this altar that's going to smell and look like death and be covered in blood often or always because there's this constant need because you're sinners and I'm holy, and then you're going to get a little closer. And then I'm going to say, hey, only the priests can come in. It's restrictive. And then they're going to get to a place where it's like, and now there's a veil. And you'll, you come in once a year. Because this is the presence of God. And so God is meant to be with man, and man is meant to be with God. It is a consistent theme of Scripture. And yet sin has jacked that plan. It has messed things up. And so this is beginnings of kind of a recreation for him to be with them and for them to worship him. It's a consistent theme of scripture. We see it in the garden. We see it here. We see it at the end of Revelation where it's told that when we're in heaven one day with him, when, when, when this world has faded away, it says that God will be with man and man will be with him the way it's meant to be. No sickness, no death, no tragedy, all tears wiped away, right? That he is with them and they are with him. That that was what the earth was created for And that's what heaven will be. The tabernacle is a reminder of that's the plan. But for us this morning, you're thinking, man, it's a lot of talk of something that we don't even deal with anymore. We go to John 1. And in John 1, we read this in verse 14. And the word, which is Jesus Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you're like, yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. What's the big deal? Because the word here for dwelt is this. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What he is saying is, uh, and our, our English struggles to translate it well is that when Jesus stepped onto the earth, when he came in flesh, that he tabernacled, he dwelled among us. That it's God saying, man's place is with me and my place is with them. And it's God putting on flesh to walk among us, to be present with us so that we would know him and worship him. And yet sin is still going to be an issue. And so, Look as you look through the tabernacle. There's some mysteries, right? Of like, do the colors mean anything? Why this? Uh, do the numbers mean anything? You can spend tons of time in there, and scripture's not going to tell you if you're right or wrong, right? In regards to all the things that you might want to think about. It. There's some mystery. When God puts on flesh to walk amongst a sinful creation, I think we're too quick to say, "Yeah, that's what He did." There's a mystery involved in that. That God would tabernacle. That He would put on flesh in limitation to come and walk with his sinful creation. So what I want us to see this morning as we look at Jesus and as we, as we wrap this up is that the people of God, the Hebrews had to have a mediator. First Moses, he's the one interacting for them with God and, and being a back and forth, a go between. It would then become the high priest for the next 1400 plus years until Jesus arrives on the scene. It was the high priest's job. But then we turn to Hebrews 9. And we hear this. Thus it was necessary, in verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He's talking about the tabernacle. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Listen to verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands. He's talking about the holy of holies which are copies of the true things, the heavenly things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That we have a mediator who walks not into the holy of holies, which is a copy of what's really going on in heaven. He walked into heaven and stood before God and said, on behalf of them, I stand. Right? Moses needed sacrifices on his behalf. The priests needed sacrifices on their behalf. And then they would walk into this copy of a heavenly thing, And Jesus says, no, I go before the throne itself. And I stand before God because I am holy and without sin. And now he is there on our behalf as a mediator. Standing and making things right with God. There is one mediator, Jesus. Then we see, not only is he our mediator, we see that he's the one who makes things right. So, one of the aspects of going on here, on the Ark of the Covenant The Ten Commandments are in it. The Ten Commandments condemn us. The law condemns us, right? So if if in the Ark of the Covenant is the law, and above it is where God is meeting us, right? Above the cherubims, that's where God is. God is looking and saying, you don't meet this requirement. You have failed. Then there's the cover, the mercy seat that goes on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And on that mercy seat, blood would be thrown as an atonement. As sacrifice would be had, it would be laid out on that. That mercy seat protects us. It covers us from the law which condemns us in a God who is holy and wants to destroy sinners. That mercy seat is the cross now. That Jesus is the one whose blood was spilled so that what condemned us, the law, and what looks to crush us because it's holy as God is covered, right, by the cross, by his sacrifice, by his mediation. The mercy seat is pointing us to the cross and to Jesus that that is what rescues us. The blood that is poured on it was a picture, a type of the day where, where God's son would die on our behalf his blood would be spilt to satisfy the wrath of God and to cover us from the condemnation of the law, right? Like the tabernacle was a picture of what the coming grace was gonna look like, the coming rescue was gonna look like. And so Jesus is our mediator. He's the one who's brought atonement. He's made us right with God because of his sacrifice. And the third thing is this, that he has given us access back to the throne room of God. So we would see the people of Israel, they didn't get to go in. And those who did, the high priest, went in with trepidation, with fear, that they weren't sure they would walk out alive if they didn't do everything by the book, if they didn't do everything right. And yet we see in Scripture this. This is Ephesians, or sorry, let me read first from Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And then this is Ephesians three twelve. In Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So now all of a sudden the flip has been turned. It says you don't go into the throne room with trepidation or you're not allowed in. It says you go before the throne of grace. You will go before the holy God with boldness and with confidence. And you're thinking, how? Because we're sinners and we don't keep the law because of Jesus. Because he has mediated peace. He has satisfied the wrath of God so that he doesn't want to crush us anymore. And then he says the veil has been torn. It is ripped apart. Right? Jesus' flesh was broken and torn and pierced so the veil would be broken and so that now we have full access to the God of the universe, the Holy One in Exodus that you fear has now said you walk before me and you come not because of your efforts, not because of your works, not because of your religion, not because of your money, not because of your culture, not because of your, your family and heritage. You come because Jesus has said that I am yours and that you are mine. When we look at the tabernacle with all of its rituals and rules and we think, what in the world should make you love Jesus and worship Jesus and praise Jesus because he has paid the price for that veil to be gone so that you can fully walk before God in boldness and confidence. And so the thing this morning is this, that for most of us, we take that for granted. That we can boldly approach the throne of grace. It costs dearly And we can see that for 1,400 plus years, people didn't have that right. And that you only have it because God has been gracious to give you his spirit and to send Jesus on our behalf to make us adopted sons and daughters. And if you don't take it for granted, I think some of us what we do is we just don't even utilize it. We don't even go. Like, right like if you had told a Hebrew, hey, you can go meet God above the, the Ark of the Covenant, he wants to have a chat they'd be like what and we're told to boldly confidently approach the throne of grace and for most of us prayer is right kind of an afterthought right that the, the tabernacle should make us go what is going on look at what jesus has done look at what he's accomplished on our behalf look at what we have access to the holy creator king of the universe. And so, if you read through the Psalms, you'll see a lot of talk of the courtyard. Talking about the courtyard of the temple, talking about the courtyard of the tabernacle, and you'll see things like this. This is Psalm 8410. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wickedness. You see those words courts and courtyard? They're saying, I want to be near you. I just, if I can just be there, that's the place I want to be because I knew you were near, you were present. And so you look through the Psalms and you'll see it everywhere. I want to be in the courtyards of God. They're saying, I want to be in that place near him. And then Jesus comes and says, no, no, no. Boldly, confidently approach the throne room of grace. You have found mercy and you have found rescue in me, And so you now get to go before God, right? Which is the consistent theme of, of scripture. He created the earth so that we would dwell with him. Sin broke that. We see a, a, a type, a symbol, a hope of it in the tabernacle. Jesus then comes and tabernacles with us to restore us to that. And so now we see it in part, and one day we will see God face to face. And you won't die. You'll be with him as you were meant to be forever. And there will be no sickness and no death and no tragedy and every tear will be wiped away and everything will be made right and be restored. And right now we get to approach that throne room of grace and prayer. Church, we are called to be living sacrifices, right? We have died to ourselves. We didn't have to be sacrificed. Jesus was for us. You get to know the living God. And so this morning, here's where we're gonna end. If you feel far from him, it's probably one of two things either you do not know him right and so we're asking the lord to to rescue you to call you just call you by name and say your mind come into the throne room by the work that i have accomplished not by the work you've attempted or you know him and sin has gotten in the way again and so you feel distant because you feel like you've worked to separate yourself from him and here's what can happen is we then as believers can forget the gospel and we can begin to say, oh, I've got I to gotta make things right. And when things are right and I'm reading my Bible a little more and I'm praying a little more and I'm not doing the sin all that much, then I'll kind of slink in the back door and say, hey, hey, God, that's not the gospel. The gospel is is you're not enough and you're not worthy of it, and yet Jesus has accomplished it on your behalf anyway. And so believer, this morning, if you have re-engaged with sin that makes it feel like you are far from the Lord, he says, you boldly and confidently come into the throne room of grace, and you confess your sin, because Jesus has already opened the door for you. You're not there because you were ever doing it well in the first place. And the truth sets us free, and so we walk in the freedom and the hope of that, because Jesus has made us right with the King. And so we have much to celebrate. Much to celebrate. Um, the band's going to come back up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. And then we're just going to enter a time of worship, right, where you worship the king that you get to boldly come before.